am so glad that you are joining us, whether you're here or online. Um, I think we are in for a really great day together um, as we kind of wrap up our series, Hope in the Dark. Um, throughout today, there's gonna, uh, I'm going to reference passage, and we have an app. If you're new or if you've never downloaded it, EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. You can download the app, and it has the ability to kind of follow along in the message and kind of track along with us. And kind of catch up if you're new and say, hey, what's going on at the church and what are some of the things that are happening here? It's a, it's a really helpful resource that we've made available and we don't have any kind of special tracking. Um, you're not going to have a conversation with someone with our app and all of a sudden it's going to pop up as an advertisement or something. You're like, wait a second, why am I seeing that ad? How do they know I'm looking for socks, right? I mean, it's not going to happen through our app. We value you and your privacy. So um, I say that because literally yesterday that happened to me. So, um, and it was not our app that did it, I'm sure. So, um, in 1976, um, Roger Payne, who was a um, neurophysiologist researcher at Tufts, was uh, listening to the radio. It was a cold March night, and he heard a report that a beat, a well had watched up on the beach. He gets around, eventually makes it to the beach just north of the city, and um, there he finds this kind of magnificent beach well. Just, I mean, the well is magnificent. The beach part's not, but it's just sitting there in the, it's kind of a darker night, and by the time he arrives, he's the only one on the beach with it. And as he walks up to the well, he starts to notice that people um, have not been so kind as they've come by. Um, there's a cigar stuck in the blowhole. Uh, people have carved off pieces of the well to kind of take and to, to show to others. And as he was sitting there, his flashlight died. And it's just the moon, it's just the waves, and the water kind of washing up. And he realizes in a moment how incredibly beautiful, how incredibly majestic this well is. And how people must have not even cared to just maim it. And do all these things, carve their initials into it. And so, Roger went back to Tufts and announced he was going to change his research. He was no longer going to do neuro kind of research. He was going to begin to study the whales. Which was not a topic that was quite popular in 1976 in academic literature. There wasn't a ton of research being doing it, done about it. And so, Roger hears about a man in Bermuda who is currently there on kind of station, kind of protecting the U.S. and through a listening device that's kind of keeping constant track of Russian submarines who sometimes come up against the Atlantic coastline. And, and so when he arrives there, because there's this huge well population off Bermuda, he meets the guy who's leading kind of the, the top secret recording research looking for submarines. And the guy's like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm actually here to start researching wells. And he says, well, I have something I think you'd like to hear. So he brings him in and he plays a tape, a recording, of what we would now call a well song. And Roger sat stunned. Because up until that moment, no one had ever heard wells sing before. And the, the military kind of listening outpost, he, he thought it was interesting, but he didn't think there was anything to do with it. And Roger asked, can I have that? And he said, yeah. So Roger went back and began to study and started to realize that well songs are not random. They're these incredibly complex 
rhythmic movements that are making, obviously, some type of communication. He realizes they meet the definition of a song. The reason we call them well songs is because of Roger. And then Roger decides that this could be the way that I, I make the world aware of how truly amazing these creatures are. Because at that point, um, the well industry was frequently kind of over-harvesting and leading to a decreasing population in wells. He was really burdened by that. And the whole idea of save a well was born out of what he did next. Roger took the recordings and he had them turned into an album. To this day, um, what he produced, Songs of the Humpback Well, is the largest, most successful environmental, like environmental music album ever produced. Yes, that is actually a category, right? Um, and so he produces the most successful environmental music album ever. And it starts to kind of stir people, and the idea of Save a Well takes root. And you fast forward in the late 70s, um, <coughs> You have NASA who's preparing the Voyager spacecrafts. And Carl Sagan has this idea, along with some other researchers, that we should put on board the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 probes. Uh, we should put an album that has all the sounds of Earth that we think would beautifully capture how amazing our planet is. This is a picture of it. It's called the Golden Album. Both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have it. At this point, they are the farthest human man-made objects um, ever to travel into space. Uh, at this point, they're close to around 15 billion miles away from us, traveling at about 38,000 miles an hour. So they're flying through outer space. Now, they decided that on the Sounds of Earth album, they should record and they should add the well song. And so Roger Payne... And his humpback recordings made it to this album. Now, on a side note, I think it's really funny that somehow back in the 70s, when they were imagining an alien spacecraft that somehow was going to find our Voyager probes one day and, and say, oh, I wonder what that planet is like that sent this probe that they're like, put it on the record player and let's hear. Like somehow the record player is what an advanced alien society traveling through outer space is currently using. That part is really funny to me, but that's a side. What is amazing is that on that very outdated record album that is currently flying through outer space is the sounds that came from a humpback well that we only have because one man north of the city of Boston in a late night of March 1976 watched a well sit dead, waves crashing over its body, and realizing that nobody cared that this had happened, and no one even knew why it had happened. And that Roger made a difference, had an impact. And this series, Hope in the Dark, we've talked about how to have hope in the midst of the darkness. Like, the last few years have been hard. And whenever you think we're cleared one hurdle, two more get inserted. And except they're not put at our feet, they're used to hit it across our face, right? I mean, like, it just seems like thing after thing keeps happening in our nation, and we feel the despair and the hopelessness. And I referenced last week just the, the obvious trend 
that people culturally and generationally are starting to have in our nation where people's not as optimistic about the future of the U.S. They're not as optimistic about kind of where we're headed as a society. There's just a kind of a general kind of despair that's slowly creeping in there. And yet as Christians or as people of faith following Jesus, I think that we have something to offer. It's not that just we are people who have hope in the dark. It's that we're meant to be hope in the dark. We're meant to make a difference. And when all we do is consume the negative news, it can feel really overwhelming to wonder how you can make a difference. And yet I would argue if you're following Jesus, it's actually something that you're supposed to be doing. And so how do you do it? How do you and I, if we're following Jesus, make a difference and how do you if you're here and you're wondering about this Jesus thing how do you really judge what Christianity is actually about and the impact it's meant to have the impact I would argue historically we have had and to answer that question I want to take you to a passage that about four weeks ago I introduced you to and it's a really helpful passage it's three verses it's written by Paul who had personally experienced the power and the transformation of what Christianity would bring and who Jesus was and what the implications of that really was for him. And, and Paul is aggressively spreading and sharing and pointing people to who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And that has sparked this movement that's now starting churches that are spreading around kind of Asia and Europe. And Paul has a couple of guys he's investing in, that he's mentoring, that he's, that he's teaching and training. And one of them is a guy named Timothy. Timothy is left in charge of this growing Christian movement in the city of Ephesus. And Paul writes a series, a couple of letters to him to help inspire, coach, and direct him. And he writes the first of those letters, 1 Timothy. Um, and towards the end of that, he's telling Timothy what specifically he's supposed to be doing and how he's supposed to be leading and what he's supposed to be teaching. And he gets to this point around making a difference and having an impact. It was one that passage, like I said, that four weeks ago we began to explore, but there's so much there that I wanted to come back around to it because underneath the first level of conversation we had four weeks ago is an even better conversation about how we can make a difference and actually be hope in the dark. So Paul says this to Timothy, um, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which richly provides, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, here's this new group of people who are now just beginning to follow Jesus and I want you to help them realize that the church is meant to make a difference, that their lives are meant to have an impact. And so he begins with a very forceful word that actually I think sets the tone for us to teach us how we can make a difference. And the first thing that he does is he requires them to think differently. 
around generosity, around impact, around influence, and the way that they make a difference in the world. You notice it says this. It says, command those. The word command is an interesting word. Paul doesn't write this in English. He actually writes this in ancient Greek. And the word that Paul uses when he writes the word command was actually a military term. Something that if you've ever served in the military, you know has a certain weight to it. If your commander said move, there was not a suggestion. If the commander said, right, meet at this time, that was not something you discussed. You did it very quickly, without question, without asking. And the word that Paul uses is this heavy military term that would be used to tell a troop of people to, to get up immediately and to shift over to a different place. There's this action. There's this kind of very strong emphasis in the word that Paul chooses. Because Paul recognizes what we don't necessarily see in this text, but that is happening in the first century when he's writing this, is that generosity is not a thing. We take for granted that generosity and philanthropy is an idea. And a lot of that is a hangover from Judeo-Christian influence in our society. But generosity in the first century did not exist. If you were generous, you weren't doing it to be generous. You were doing it because you did something for someone so that they would owe you, so they would have to do something back for you. If you did something for someone you did not know, who could not repay you, you were not called generous. You were called a fool. That's what you were called. And then Christianity comes along, and Paul is spreading this message, and he's going to churches, and he's telling them, hey, there are other churches and other people who are struggling hundreds of miles away, so I want you to take up an offering so that we can help them because they're starving or they have needs. And we read those passages, and we don't even think anything about it. We're like, oh, that's very nice of Paul. Oh, that's very generous of Paul. But you have to realize that what Paul was doing there was unheard of. Hundreds of miles distance in the first century would be like you reading the newspaper of some village in Papua New Guinea about some woman who had a house fire and needs clothes for her children. You don't know them. You don't even know where that village is in Papua New Guinea. You're not even sure what Papua New Guinea is because that sounds like a band. Like, there's nothing emotionally connecting about that to you. Like, you have no care, no desire. It's just not on your radar. And for these people to care about people hundreds of miles away would be like you burdened because you heard about a house fire in Papua New Guinea in a small village. You're not going to lose sleep over it tonight. You're never going to see them. And you've just only decided if you ever do start a band, you're calling it Papua New Guinea. Like, that's it. And you go to bed. So generosity was not a thing. And Paul comes along and says, no, it is. Because at the heart of Christianity is the very first defining generous act that is the very hope of all our foundation. It's the, the very center of the Christian faith was the generous act of Jesus on a cross. So he says, command them who are rich in this present world. We are all rich. According to this definition, just in case you want to kind of get yourself out of that one. But you have to realize that Ephesus was an incredibly wealthy city. I mean, this is unheard of, but they were, the wealthy in Ephesus actually had 
running water, both warm and cold, in their homes. Like, there are still places in America right now in the Appalachia region where there's still not running water in homes. And these people almost 2,000 years ago had running warm and running cold water straight into their home. So incredible lavish wealth existed in Ephesus because of its location and kind of the way it sat as the center point between Europe and Asia and, and roads and travel and spices and the port. So there was money constantly flowing into that city. And so Paul is specifically speaking to Timothy because he knows this is a unique challenge they have. They have wealth. They have resources. And he says, command them with resources not to put their hope in wealth. Why is he telling them this? Because in the first century, there was no such thing as social security. There was no such thing as any type of welfare state. There was no, you know, PPP. There was no stimulus checks. There was no, if things get hard, we'll help you out. If things got hard, you died. That was it. And that led to people having an overconfidence in wealth because the only thing in their mind that could secure them, that could make themselves safe, was money and resources. And so he's like, don't put your confidence in something as shaky as money. Don't put your confidence in your hope in something as insecure as your bank account. He's challenging them to think differently about generosity. It's something that you're supposed to do. It's not predicated on how you feel. It's not predicated on your uh, cash flow. It's not dependent on what you have time to do or not do. It's not dependent on Sarah McLaughlin singing a sad song and a little puppy staring at you through the screen. Right? Because... If you were going to be generous in our culture, we think it's, it's, it's a reaction, it's spontaneous, it's something you do when you're emotionally stirred, it's something that, you know, the richer you are, the more you should do it, and it's one that we oftentimes have excuses for not being generous, because all of us have this ability, we do this in relationships a lot, right? You're, you're, you're always this way. No, I'm not. Remember three weeks ago I said that compliment about the way you looked when you asked me how this dress looked on me? So, no, I do pay attention to you. Three weeks ago I gave you a compliment. Like we have an ability as humans to pull up a moment, no matter how far distant in the past, no matter how small and obscure, and use that as an argument for why we're not that person that we just got accused of being. I know you don't do that. But I am sure that people have done that to you. And Paul recognizes, embedded in this different way of thinking, is to not fall into the ditch of thinking we're smart. Because everybody, even the meanest people alive, have done something for someone at some point. And this is not a spontaneous thing that he's calling them to. He's like, you've got to think differently. This is a command. And that military term gives you this insight. If you're in the military and your commander says move, you don't say, you know, I just don't feel it. Uh, could you play some Sarah McLaughlin? And, you know, like maybe that'll help me in the arms of an angel. Okay, I can move now, right? Like that doesn't work in that world. You do it. You have a plan. 
you respond. You know that time. That's when you're going to do it. There's a lot of predecision. There's a lot of defaulting because you don't drift into generosity. You're not going to drift into being that kind of person ever. We drift towards selfishness, not selflessness. So he says, command them. Command them to not put their hope in this world, to be rich. And then he makes this point, which is really healthy, because there are two different ditches in the culture back then that still exist to this day. There were people in that culture in Ephesus that had this idea that money is evil, and so they were very much kind of living out that kind of intentional, like, desert, like, wasteland, don't have any possessions, money is evil kind of mindset. And then you have people who are living lavishly, ridiculously. And, and Paul's like, no, both are ditches. People are like, oh, money's the root of evil. I'm like, actually, no, if, you wanna, if you're trying to be biblical and you're thinking theologically, money is not the root of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money is a tool. And it's a tool in the hands of people who are good, who can make a difference. And it's a tool in the hands of, of wicked and evil who can manipulate and bribe and suppress and pressure people. It's a tool. It's, it's, it's what does it do in the hand of the person? So it's the love of money that's at the root of all evil. This over kind of compensate, this overconfidence in what money is and what it's going to do and how happy it's going to make me. So he's challenging them to think differently. Money is a gift from God. Something that richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. If you have means, whether it's in your time or your resources or your finances, like that's not bad. He, Paul comes along and frees them. Says, no, there's, you're not, shouldn't feel guilty for making money. I would argue because the same word for generosity has the same word as it root for generate. So I would say make as much money as possible. But live out this style. Live out this command. Generate to be generous. Like it's a good thing. And so Paul's kind of making sure Timothy knows, hey, there's two ditches. Pull them out. Put them on the road. Because you've got to think differently about generosity and making a difference. And then he continues, and he says, making a difference requires living differently too. He expands on this idea. You'll see it here. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So he's just commanded them to be rich, which is this broad phrase, in good deeds. Now he's expanding on it. He says, let me be very clear what I'm saying. Three different camps, three different explicit commands are embedded. So he's telling them command, and then he repeats three different commands. So there is a lot of emphasis on this is a choice. This is something you do. This is not a response to spontaneity. This is something that is a pre-planned, pre-part, intentional aspect of your life every single day, whether you wake up filling it or you don't. He said to be rich in good deeds to do good, to make a difference. There are so many people who walk into a room and they're not thinking, I'm going to do something bad. But they come into the room with a, 
with a subtraction mindset. There's something in that room I need. I'm going to get it. And then they leave. And Paul says, no, that's not your mindset. What you're supposed to do is live differently. Our mindset is an addition mindset. I'm going to go into that room, and I'm going to make sure I'm adding something good, not just taking something that I need. I mean, if you went into relationships, you probably have some of you, some of the most impactful people in your life, without knowing your story, were people who had this mindset. Whether it was a coach or a teacher growing up, whether it was someone who mentored you in a professional stage, maybe it was a parent, and it was that they had a posture not to take from you, but to actually add something to you when you were around them. And it made a difference for you. And that was not an accident. They didn't drift into that mindset. They decided that's who they're going to be. And Paul's saying, hey, when we walk into the room, we live differently. Whether it's in our romantic world, our professional world, in our parenting world, in our financial world, whatever world it is, when we move in, we don't think subtraction, we think addition. How do I add to this person and where they are? Even in the hard, right? Again, think differently. There's, it's not circumstantial. Well, when the circumstances feel right, then I will. It's like, nope. When cash flow or, or, or somebody I like, nope. No, it's a command. Regardless of how much you dislike them, how much you don't have, you're commanded, I'm commanded to be someone who adds, not takes away. And then he says to be rich in good deeds, which is really kind of a stark visual, isn't it? Because everybody has done something some to someone at some time that was nice. But that's not being rich in good deeds, is it? And Paul says, no, you're to be rich in good deeds. There should be an avalanche of stories where you show up and make a difference. Where you show up and what you've done was good. What you you did made a difference in their life. Not subtracted and left them with a difference in their life. And then he says, and to be generous and willing to share. And this is interesting. This is one command, but he double stacks it because he was wanting to make the point that this, the way that you're rich in good deeds and the way that you are generous in your resources and how you share is so obvious to the to the outside world looking in, that they can tell something is different. That it's above and beyond. That it's beyond the the average and the norm. Um, Massachusetts as a state um, is is kind of an interesting state. I was kind of doing a ton of research around giving and people's perceptions of giving and um, percentages of giving and what's the most generous states in the union down to the county level, and I even had a map, but I was like, you know what? They probably won't get too excited about a county level map, so I'll just hold that one and I'll just marvel at it privately. But if I were to have gifted you that county level map of the U.S. based on giving, what you would have noticed very quickly is that we live in a not-so-generous area of the nation. 
In fact, New England is one of the least generous areas in the U.S. Simultaneously, though, we are one of the most affluent, educated, enlightened, with the best sports teams, right? Like, there's so much good going on here, but there's not a lot of good coming from here. And yet on the map, there's also desolate areas of the U.S. where there is a lot of poverty, there's not a lot of good going on, a lot of unemployment, and yet those counties lit up that map because of their generosity. One of the things that was really fascinating was a, um, a major research firm um, was able to secure uh, the records of a group of people that they asked the question, how generous are you, in a survey, and then they were given permission to look at their IRS records to actually gauge their generosity. And you would think if someone was going to look at your tax records, that surely when they asked you face-to-face, are you generous, you would say, not really. But these people would say, I'm so generous. And then they would look to the point of about 60% difference, right? Like 60% more would say I'm generous than they actually were. The tax records are showing reality, and they're living in some alternate reality with their level of generosity. So Paul knows that, like, this is something that we have to move towards intentionally. The average American gives around 2.5% to some philanthropy movements. I would argue that, well, the Old Testament, New Testament points to a 10% standard in income as generosity. I would say at least that what should mark the Christian circles should be something higher than 2.5%. Because Paul says it should be obvious to people that the way you live is different. Not 2.7, not 2.8. You don't walk away from someone who's 2.8 nice and think, man, that is quite an above average person and their niceness. You, You don't. You don't even notice it. And he knows that by doing this, something will happen that will change the world. Something that has changed the world. I mean, we forget all the time what generosity actually does. And so Paul is saying, look, I want you to start to move through your life doing good, being someone who brings value to every relationship and situation that you step into, to be so overly aggressive in your good deeds that someone would have to would say that you're rich in them and that you're so generous that it's not just marked by the consistent, non-emotional, like I'm planning, I'm setting aside ahead of time to be generous, that you go beyond that. There's this double stacking that people looking at your tax records would have to say something's weird. Okay, can, can I just be really candid with you about money? Because I know I'm talking about money, and so some of you have a lot of hang-ups around money. Some of you, especially when it comes to the faith, has a lot of hang-ups. I almost get audited every single year 
Can I tell you why I get audited almost every single year? It's because when the IRS, and specifically Massachusetts state government, because they're the ones who always do this. I'm about to tell you, and this is online, so it's probably going to get me in trouble one day. But I get frequently audited because Jenny and I are so committed to generosity that when we send in our tax records, and they look at how much I make, and they look at how much I give, and their first thought is I am clearly falsifying my records or have some type of, like, you know, thing going on. The first time, I just thought it was like, oh, you know, just standard audit. Then it started happening again and again, and I was like, they're, oh, like I'm trying to start to figure this thing out, and I realized they're looking at how much we give versus how much they, we make, and they're like, something's off. So eventually, I started to get irritated with it, and I started printing everything. I'm sorry, this sounds horrible. I started printing everything that I sent to them in eight-point font so that they would have to, like, read it really, and I would, like, make it even smaller on the page, and I'd print it out, and there would be, like, hundreds of pages, and then I'd mail it to them because at a certain point, I was like, you cost me so much time and money. I am not going to be convenient for you, and so I just kept shrinking the font. At a certain point, they're going to give up when it's like two-point font and they're having to pull out the magnifying glass. But what they're going to find then is still we're being generous. Like, so when I'm talking about this, this is not something, oh, I'm trying to set you up because I want your money. That's not it. It's, we live this. I experienced the impact of generosity. And that actually the state government of Massachusetts recognizes the difference and how different it is compared to the norm. I think that when people audit our lives, they should see that. Not just in our finances, but how we treat others and what we do and how we love. And maybe there's not someone auditing your life, but Paul makes this very important point about what it looks like for us to be people who make a hope in the darkness. In the second passage, um, I'll get to that dude in a second. Second passage, he gets to this whole section right here where he's starting to point to them to a grander perspective. So, this is Art Allen. Art is an oceanographer with the Coast Guard. Now, Coast Guard is this incredible group of men and women who spend about 50,000 hours a year rescuing people who are trapped at sea, who are lost at sea. Now, this is probably not something you've ever thought about outside of the handful of people who come to this church who are part of the Coast Guard. But we actually have a really really impressive rate of recovering people who are lost at sea. That it's not an actual uncommon thing that if you fall overboard with a life jacket on, you may spend days out in the water, but there's a chance, more likely than not, you will be rescued and found. And the reason that is true, the reason you have a greater percentage than not of being found is because of art. Alan. Art goes to Chesapeake Bay, Cinco de Mayo in 2001. Um, he's working with the Coast Guard as a researcher, and he happens to be there when they get a report that one of the sailboats that had left the harbor that morning has not come back. And so the Coast Guard begins to mobilize their forces, and they begin to look. There's three adults, and there's a small child, nine-year-old, on board. And they can't figure out where they are. They search for hours and hours. It turns to dark and the water gets cold. 
And eventually they discover the next morning, they find the boat, it had capsized. The nine-year-old, because there's so much water, there's so much heat loss in water, that the nine-year-old dies. And Art watches this. And he's so bothered by it. Because he's like, how do we... We have satellites in the sky. We have the most advanced Coast Guard in the world. We have all this equipment. How could we lose somebody in less than 100 square miles? And so Art begins on his own time and his own dime to begin to throw things in the water and track them. Because he's like, there should be software that when you find out someone's missing, that we should be able to know because we know drift currents. We know wind. We know all of that. We've got an extensive amount of buoys all over the ocean and satellites. All that data is there. We should be able to figure that out. And that nobody figured it out. So Art does. He throws random things in the water. He, he takes a boat. He tosses it in. He takes a life jacket, tosses it in, gets a dummy from a store, Puts a life jacket on, tosses in, takes the dummy from the store, throws it in without a life jacket. Like he, he purposely sets boats into the harbor, all types of boats with all types of malfunctions and freak, like just throws things. And for years, that's all he does. He's throwing things in the water and he's tracking it to see how it drifts based on the currents. No one is paying him, including the government that he works for, to do this research. And Art eventually starts to build out an algorithm and a program that can compensate for what type of object because a large man floats differently than a small child, even if both are wearing a life jacket. But prior to Art, you just assumed everybody, everything floated the same. And Art is responsible for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people's lives being saved. And until I heard about art, I never even knew there was a name. You didn't discover art until today. Art was a silent, quiet person working behind the scenes with passion, regularly going above and beyond what was asked of him, being rich in good deeds. And made a significant contribution that hasn't just saved thousands upon people's lives here, but this software eventually traveled to around the world. When he retired from the U.S. government, nobody sent him a thank you. But the Thai government sent him a coffee cup. Said, thank you. You've saved so many people's lives here because of what you did. And I think that Art is a perfect example of why generosity matters so much. Because Paul says they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. He's like, you can't predict the downstream effects of your generosity. I mean, we've all tasted that, right? Many of us have stories where we are where we are, we are who we are because of someone who is generous to us in good deeds or in resources. And they would have never predicted in the moment when they gave you that extra time, when they invested in you, that it would shape and impact your life the way it has. But it did. They could not produce, 
predict the downstream effects of that. That's why in my backpack, I'm weird, prerequisite, um, I carry around um, a few things, and one of them is a sequoia seed and a pine cone. Um, because a giant sequoia, if you've never seen one, is probably one of the most amazing plants you'll ever encounter in your entire life. About half of this room is what it would take to kind of fit the circumference of the tree trunk. When you walk into a grove of giant sequoias, um, you know, over 100 feet around, almost 300 feet tall, you almost feel like a T-Rex and a fairy should fly by because it just feels so out, like it's so bizarre how inspiring it is. And when I first saw a giant sequoia, I became obsessed because it was amazing. Eventually, um, well, that day, I acquired the seed because I, I had to know how big a seed was that produced something like that because the tree that I got this from was over 2,000 years old. And then eventually it became something that, like, I said, I got obsessed. Our family got a sequoia so we can plant one here. So that like 2,000 years from now, people are really confused in Massachusetts because there's a giant sequoia just in the middle and it's just taking over everything and, and no one knows why a giant sequoia is growing here. And it's like my 2,000-year prank that I'm really excited about, right? But it, it, it was such a reminder to me when I stood there that day and I was looking at it. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a glimpse of the church because about 2,000 years ago, a tiny seed was planted in Calvary and buried in a grave. And three days later, that seed broke forth, stepping out alive. And Jesus started something that we call the church that began to grow and spread. And for 2,000 years, it's continued to grow and spread. And in the wake of that growing and spreading, while there are headlines about the heartbreak of really foolish, evil people using religion to justify and to advance their means, there has been a bigger, quieter storyline, a lot like our Allen of the church that's been making a difference in impacting all spheres for thousands of years. From the first pandemic that Rome ever had in the aftermath of the church being born and Christians nursing people who did not believe what they believed back to life, from 300 years of growth where love eventually conquered the greatest empire and destroyed the barbaric roots that it had and the way it killed and brutalized and destroyed lives because of the way that the church loved and served and made a difference in the way that they were rich in good deeds and rich in their generosity, even though none of them oftentimes were rich because they were oppressed and at times could not even get a job because their faith made getting a job illegal. And yet they were known for the good they did and the difference they made. Like, I stood there and I realized that my entire life, if I've ever stood underneath the tree, I'm benefiting from someone else having vision and someone else's sacrifice. The shade of the tree that you sit under is a result of someone years before you were born sacrificing and giving and planting a seed. And that the good that we experience, the, the fruitfulness, if you grew up in church because someone planted a seed that you got to sit under the shade of. And that that's the storyline of Christianity, a movement, a force 
And standing there, I, I remember having this private moment with God and just saying, Jesus, I want to be a part of that. I want my life, my actions, my deeds, our finances to be a part of that movement. Because I believe you are still in the business of changing the world and radically upending darkness by allowing us to be light and hope in the midst of it. And part of that was anchored in the fact that what Paul's alluding to here is there is a coming age, there is a day. There is a day when Jesus is not a name that we sing about in a song. He is not the, the message that I am speaking today. He is no longer just a name that is on a screen. He will be a face in front of you. And that realization of holy moly, there is a day in my calendar. I don't know the date. But there is a day in my calendar where the name of Jesus will become the face of Jesus. And I've got a toddler, and I've very familiarly reminded of the human instinct when you do something wrong, and you pick them up and you say, Henry, and what do they do? They're like, I'm like, Henry, and he's like, because he, he doesn't want to look at me because he knows what he's done. And I'm like, Jesus, when I see you, I want to stare at you. I don't want to look down. I don't want to look to the left or to the right because I didn't live my life right. You see, there are plenty of excuses that you can give about where you are and what you've become and what you've done and why you're not generous and why you're not this and why you're not that. You can give me excuses all day and some of them are valid. But there is one area in your life where you and I are not capable of producing an excuse. And it's in this area when we see him and the name becomes a face. You're not going to be able to point to your parents. You're not going to be able to point to your sorry spouse. You're not going to be able to point to your bum boss. You're not going to be able to point to your health. You're not going to be able to point to anything. Because you are the only person responsible for how you have lived with what you have. You're the only one responsible for what you've done with what was dealt. And in that day... What you were dealt is not a part of the conversation. The only part of that conversation is what have you done with what you were dealt? And that drives me. Not because I believe on that day if I did it badly, he would say, get out of here. No, because the only reason I go in there is because of Jesus and because of grace. But I so, because of his love for me, want to live and leverage my life in such a way that it is good, it is rich in good deeds, and it is generous. And done in such a way that when I see him, he is like, well done, boy. Come on, come on, buddy. Welcome home. That there is pride. And I recognize at the end of the day, my life is probably going to be much like a toddler artwork where they bring it up and they're like, look what I colored. And I'm like, it looks like you took a crayon and scraped it over the page. I don't say that out loud because that would be mean. But that's what I think internally, even though that's mean. And, like, I know that that's probably all it's going to be that day. But when my son hands me what he's colored, and he's, and he presents it with pride, 
that's going to be my life that day. And the reason I'm a pastor is because I want desperately, not that just for me, but that for you too. I want you to have that day when the name of Jesus becomes the face of Jesus. That you don't look down, you don't look left, you don't look right, you look straight at him. And you're like, here it is. I can't wait for you to look at it. Here's what I did with what I was dealt. And you've got that choice. I've got that choice. And I think if we're willing to do it, if our lives were audited, would they find this? Are we hope in the dark? And to help you, three different things. One is starting to commit to be someone who brings value, regardless of what's taken from you. Decide that today. God, from this moment on, whenever I walk into a conversation, whenever I walk into a situation, whenever I walk through a struggle, no matter the circumstances, I'm going to bring value. I'm going to look for a way to bring value, even if it costs me. For some of you, you're like, well, how do I, how do I practice rich and good deeds? I would say today is a great way to start. Right after the service, we're going to be cooking out hamburgers, hot dogs, got a bounce house. We're just going to be hanging out. And if you currently volunteer or you're actually interested in volunteering because we are a church that only exists because people are rich in good deeds. They show up on Sunday, they serve, they give. Maybe what they have is a smile and a friendly attitude and a way of making people feel welcomed and warm and invited. Maybe it's the way they engage with kids, but I'm telling you, the only reason if you love this church, that you love this church is because someone has been rich in good deeds. It's probably not because of me. This church is built on people who are rich in good deeds. And today's a great way. If you're like, I wonder what that would look like to do to be a part of this thing. Right after church, hang out. Eat with us. Meet other people from this church who are living their life this way. Step into it. We would love to help you find a place where you could be rich in good deeds. And a big challenge I want to give you, the third and final way, is actually in your resources and your money. Because I know for many of us, we have some hang-ups around that. So here's what I want to ask you to do. For the next 90 days, I want you to intentionally be generous. And let me give you a disclaimer, all right? I'm, I'm going to be very clear with this. If the reason you don't want to give money to a church is because you're not sure about this church, then either ask me the questions so that I can address the concerns you have. Or find a church where you can give fully. This is my disclaimer. I'm dead serious. Why? Because generosity is that important. And it's that important in your life. I want more for you to see him and to have lived your life and not have any shame than I do want you sitting in these seats. I would rather lose you for you to gain that than for you to sit in here and just sit. I mean that with love, but I mean that firmly. Because that's how important it is. And if that's not your hang-up, you're like, oh, okay, well, I don't, well I've got questions, I'll, I'll, I'll answer them. We have, how, how's my salary set? I've got a board of outside pastors who look at the average cost of living here, who look at what I made prior in previous employment spots, and based on those formulas and what they know, they designate my salary that's then moderated and counted and checked and guided by an accounting group and that we have sitting over us 
I can't write checks. I don't have access to the bank accounts. Money that comes in, I can't do anything with. We've got systems and processes. But if maybe your hang up is that you're just not sure how to even do it, what it even looks like, what would a life be marked, I want to challenge you to step into this. If you follow Jesus, to step into this. Because if you follow Jesus and the reason you're not being generous is that you're concerned you don't have the resources because you're in debt or you've got bills or whatever. I'm not saying you give it all away. But I'm saying that isn't God the one who gave you everything to begin with? And one of the beauties of practicing generosity is you start to discover that God can meet every single one of your needs. I told you four weeks ago, our family lives on a, about three-fourths of what we make. So we save 10% and we give over 10% away. And that, that act, of just that, produces a lot of good downstream effects. And that, that posture of living generously really isn't about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants for you. You become a better money manager when you realize it's all his. But I can tell you moments where things have happened in our past where we didn't know how things were going to be provided or I never sacrificed giving and generosity. I was like, God, I'm trusting you and I trust you. And I could sit here and bore you all day with story after story after story after story of the way God provides. And just for 90 days, how about step into that? And, and maybe try to let this part of your life, this part of your faith, start to be unleashed. I'm, I'm not putting a number on it. I'm just saying that it should be, a, it should be higher than 2.5. Because that's the average. You don't, don't need to jump in where we are. Maybe that's something you grow to. But to help you, if you sign up for this, we're going to give you a book that's really helpful. It's a small book, but it just helps you begin to process and address some of the questions that you have around generosity. And for 90 days, step into this challenge. And we want to help you grow in this area. Because your life is meant to make a difference. Your life is meant to have an impact that is to ripple for generations to come. And there is a whole group of people out there who's been limited and hindered by you not being generous. And let's just be real. If we could get back all the money that we spent on stupid stuff, on things that are sitting in our basement or our storage unit, if we could get back all the money that we've ever spent on dumb things and we could use it to do good things. If I'm being honest, just... It makes me embarrassed to think all the good things that could have happened. And I just don't want to live like that. And you need to know, this church doesn't live like that either. That's not just my life that's marked by this post. It's not just some of you's lives who are marked by giving 10 plus percent of your income. That this year, our church, your church, has given well over 10% of every single money that has come in the door. We've given it away. That because of your generosity, people have had meals, people have had bills paid, people have found counseling, and people have found restoration, and people have found healing, and people have found hope, and we've been able to make a difference, not just with people's lives 
inside the church, but outside the church and beyond. We've put, helped people get to college. We have done so many different things because of your generosity. Because God's genius idea was a bunch of me's giving what they can give turns into a we that can make a difference. So, if you want to make a difference, you got to think differently. And you got to live differently. And if for the next 90 days we're able to do that, you're able to do that, I think what you'll find is that you just won't have hope in the darkness. You'll actually be hope in the darkness. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done and who you are and how you're allowing us to be a part of the movement that you're doing here. And I pray that you would give us the confidence, the boldness to say, yes, I will, Jesus. Yes, I will. Live my life in a way that brings value to people. Yes, I will live my life in a way that if I was audited for my deeds or for my dollars, people would see there's a difference in how I live. And God, thank you in advance for the thousands of lives that will be impacted downstream out of our choice today to be people who choose to be hope in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to close up with a song that says, Yes, I will, and it's just a declaration song of like, God, I mean this. For some of you today who've never leaned into this whole idea of a life that's leveraged to be rich, I want this to be a moment for you to say, yes, I will. And for maybe for in the midst of singing, God might bring up some people that he wants you to start adding value to your life, to their lives. For those who are saying, yes, I want to step into the generosity challenge, encounterchurch.com forward slash generosity. For those who regularly give, thank you. Because of your generosity, we are able to do those things. That we're able to have given away over $40,000 this year to make a difference. That because of you, we're a part of God doing something so much bigger than we could ever ask or imagine. And that the way that you can do that is the regular movement is we have a box beside the cafe, but we also, through the app and through encounterchurch.com forward slash give, those are the means for you to be able to engage with that. So I want to invite you to stand. Um, and let's just use this as a time in our lives and our hearts to say, God, I want to be a difference maker. And today, let me begin that journey. Let's sing.